you are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson. Because democracy doesn't just happen. And welcome back to 101.9 High FM. I'm chatting today with Daniel Eloff from a fantastic a legal firm, Hurtisbees. Daniel has been involved in many legal challenges against uh, government and over some various uh, different issues. And I must say, it is uh, he's one prolific lawyer. Welcome, welcome, Donny. Trust you well. Oh, we seem to be having a few technical issues there. Um, I think Donny is probably on mute. <laughs> Click the unmute button there, Donny. <laughs> How are you, Donny? Oh, we're having some technical issues. But while we sort those out, um, I can tell you a bit of history about, about Donny. He's a very active uh, lawyer within the civil society space and has a great passion for for civil and public interest litigation which is quite 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 rare and, and refreshing in in the legal space he's driven by a need to fix society and uh, attend all the wrongs that um that are put forward by by governments and let's face it, in, in South Africa, he's certainly not not short of of challenges to to address and uh, cases to to go on. And Donnie's uh, involved in quite quite a few recent cases, ranging from uh, action with with different society groups, including quite a high profile case, which is uh, against a political leader, uh, Julius Malema, obviously. In, in a hate speech case representing representing Afriforum. And while while we're waiting for Donnie to come come back on here, um, I can say that he also does quite a bit of work behind the scenes for for other other civil groups, putting together proposals that go to government and and so on. And really, really makes a difference. You know, the the role of civil society is is extremely important in in especially in South Africa where we appear to have a, a largely incompetent government and that cannot really, really deliver as, as well as it should. But, you know, luckily we have organizations and their legal teams which can actually help us help us out there. Is Donnie online? Yes, indeed, Rob. Yay! How are you doing, Donnie? Fine, Apologies for that. <laughs> you with us there, Donnie? Yes, yes, I'm here, Rob. Oh, fantastic. fantastic. Great to have you on the show, Johnny. As as always, I was just covering up there and singing your praise and, and <laughs> telling a bit, bit of your history there. <laughs> Thank you. No, oh. it's lovely, lovely being back. I always enjoy it here. Oh, fantastic. I was just telling telling our listeners uh, as who you are and your background and your, your passion for uh, civil society litigation and public interest litigation. Give us a bit of background as to, to why you chose that path. Well, it's quite interesting, sort of a strange um, way how I ended up here. But um, yeah, I, I ended up at Hurt to Speech, and coincidentally, Hurt to Speech, our firm, does all this this wonderful work, and we have these wonderful clients. So, so in a way, it's sort of luck of the draw, and uh, probably to a certain extent. But uh, you know, I sort of do feel quite a calling to to do this type of work, and to uh, I feel very blessed to be part of of public interest litigation, and to you know, really uh, be involved with cases that so that I hope makes a difference in in South Africans' lives. Well, that, speaking from experience, I can I can definitely say your your dedication, devotion, and passion is without a doubt well well appreciated in 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 the sector, and it, it's no no doubt it it also shows in in the results that you get. 
there's been a couple of recent high-profile cases. Um, I know there's uh, one that you've been doing for Sarkalik and Africa Forum, and all all the way down through for for DSA and a number of other other organisations. What has been your, I'd say, do you want to take us through some of the the latest cases that you that you have done? Yeah, so, so quite recently, we actually got two constitutional court judgments that our firm was involved in uh, in the last sort of couple of weeks. The one was the, the Sakhalifa case against the Minister of Finance. And that case dealt with uh, what we call the Preferential Public Procurement Framework Act. And the essence of the case was, in terms of that act, the Minister of Finance issued regulations for public tenders. And what the regulations basically said is, uh, over and above the normal BE requirements for tendering, you know, then you, you sort of go through the tender process and you get a you get a score, and the scores comprised of your BE score, how uh, you know the price for rendering the services, and then obviously sort of for your level of expertise and experience, and then you get a final score. And and what the minister did through these regulations is added an extra hurdle where you have to be pre-qualified as a BE entity to even take part in a tender process. And so it, it basically ensured that any company, regardless of their BE status, well, if, if you don't have a good enough BE status, you can't even tender for any government project. And that was taken on by Sakhalicha. It ended up uh, first in the High Court, then later in the Supreme Court of Appeals. And uh, last week in the Constitutional Court, we finally got confirmation by the highest court in the land that it's it's an unacceptable regulation that you can sort of put this prerequisite on the tender process and basically exclude any company uh, who's not at the perfect BE level from participating in the process. So that's the one interesting case that we had this past week, which is obviously a good win, we believe. And then secondly, we were involved in the case of Masuku against the South African Jewish Board of Deputies. And that was a hate speech case where a former uh, trade union member uh, uh, really said some atrocious things regarding Israel and uh, the Zionist movement. And in the end of the day, the Constitutional Court held that it was indeed hate speech and that Mr. Masuku should be apologize, should apologize to the entire uh, South African Jewish communities for the remarks he made. Wow, that is that is quite quite something. You know, I, in 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 my intro, I was actually going on about the the necessity for civil society organisations and and their their legal teams in in holding government accountable and ensuring that the the law of, of the land is is actually met by by everyone. There's often there's often the misconception that um, politicians and government officials are are above the law in in South Africa, but as you've shown, that that is not the case. Yet, some people seem to be about above the law and, and get away with this. Uh, why? Why would you say that is? Does does judgment depend on context? Does it depend on the individual, or is the law applied equally to to all South Africans? It, it's sort of a, it's a difficult question to answer because the the point is. Uh, context does matter in, in certain circumstances, and our courts aren't blind to context. I mean, uh, I think we, we often pretend or, or at least think that the bench and the judiciary are, you know, completely objective. But, you know, it's still a human being sitting there, and they're not untouched by the realities around them and uh, the context and the background. So context is, is quite important, but obviously the, the law should be applied without fear or favor. 
And, and generally, I do believe that's how I, our courts approach it. We might not always agree with the outcome, um, but, but the procedure is followed. And as I always tell people, I, I think we do place a lot of hope on our courts. And, um, you know, sort of courts have, in a lot of instances, become a, a last resort. And they, they truly have defended democracy, or we've, a lot of parties have used our courts to defend democracy during the past 20 years. But the courts are just, you know, one forum where we need to fight for our rights and, and for democracy. It's just one, you know, another battlefield for the battle of ideas. Uh, and, and you sort of use it in tandem with public participation through elections, uh, through other activism. And that's sort of how we need to view it, how we need to, if we want to affect change, we, we need to see it in that context that the court is but one forum that, that should be used to try to affect that change that we want to see. Absolutely, it is. And it's, it's often the, the final uh, or the last resort as well. There are many other processes which government seems to abuse uh, along the way and, and, and ignore. So we then are forced to, to approach the courts. And that, you know, you've got, to, you've got to wonder, does government do it deliberately, knowing that civil society relies on, on donations from, from the public? And government seems to have you know, very deep pockets funded by, of course, taxpayers at the same time. So the, uh, I know your firm does, does, an, uh, does an incredible amount of, of litigation and um, often does uh, pro bono work. Would you say its uh, pro bono approaches is necessary for some organizations or uh, are there other means that they can go to? Yes, I, I sort of feel it, it's all law firms' responsibility to take on some pro bono work. I mean, the, the problem is there is quite a, a high barrier placed on average South Africans to, to get quality legal services. So it, it definitely is something that needs to be looked at. But the thing is, most firms already do have pro bono, they already do take on pro bono work, even if it's not uh, formally, you know, uh, um, sort of pro bono work that's acknowledged somewhere. Because the point is, Again, it's humans who run law firms, and these humans have hearts, and, and they see the struggles that people go through, and they often realize that they're unable to afford legal services. So a lot of law firms already do pro bono work and try to you know, sort of do their bit to help people. But, but certainly, I think pro bono work should be encouraged, and it would be good if we see a lot more of it. And again, I, I think there's a lot of room in South Africa for more law clinics. I mean... Law clinics don't necessarily just have to be affiliated with universities, and, and we definitely could see more law clinics all over the country who do particular work, and it, it can be focused work, uh, but we, we should definitely see that develop a bit more, in my opinion. Oh, brilliant. Uh, it's, it's actually quite welcome to, to hear that. You know, there's often the, 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 the conception that, or misconception that goes around that the only people that benefit from action against the state is obviously the lawyers and and, and massive paychecks and, and and we've seen that in some cases where where a civil society organization will challenge a government and then is subject to a, a cost order from governments i've seen quite a few uh, civil society organizations struggling to to meet those is shouldn't there be or is there some uh, some system in place where civil society organizations are exempt from such claims from from government uh, sorry, Rob, I, I struggled to hear sort of the last five seconds or ten, ten seconds of the question. Would you mind repeating it? 
Yes, yeah, so it's just about uh, cost orders placed on civil society organizations that are unsuccessful in challenges. Yes, is, is, that, is that the norm or, or yeah, is that's a, a, that's a wonderful, wonderful question. Um, so in, in South Africa, we, we do have a, a legal principle that was in, in sort of enshrined in a previous case where it, it was basically held that any entity or person who litigates in the public interest trying to assert their rights should not be burdened with uh, with a cost order. So generally speaking, when you see civil rights organizations or you see entities going to court on a constitutional issue, they don't get, um, they, they don't get these adverse cost orders against them. And, and I mean, the reasoning behind it is simple. You don't want to discourage people from coming to court to assert their rights uh, because of the fear of potentially getting a cost order against them. Um, so so it, it, it is quite a, um, a trite legal principle. But obviously, it also depends on sort of the intention with the litigation. And it's obvious and clear that the parties, they're not necessarily to assert a right, but rather to drive some political agenda, then the court will obviously take that into consideration. Oh, that's that's good news and, and welcome, uh, a welcome idea for, for civil society. I mean, it is important that they do hold government accountable and definitely have the means and resources to do so. Yes. And, and speaking of holding government accountable, you recently involved in a very high-profile case against uh, Julius Malema. Do you want to take us through the basics basics of that? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, I, we'd, we probably need a three-hour discussion uh, <laughs> to, to properly go through everything. But, I mean, in, in a nutshell, the, the this case can be summarized as there was a previous case between Forum and uh, the ANC and Mr. Julius Malema in 2011. And in terms of that uh, court case, the parties, uh, Forum won the case, then it was taken on appeal. And before the appeal was heard, the parties agreed to a mediation agreement with, between them. So that mediation agreement was then made in order of court, and that's sort of what was standing. And important to note that I, that court case stopped the ANC from singing Kill the Boer, Kill the Farmer. It, it, it sort of stopped that hateful uh, political rhetoric. So that was quite good. But since, uh, since then and after the case, uh, Julius Mema obviously went on and started the economic freedom fighters, and they've continuously been singing Kill the Boer, Kill the Farmer. Uh, although they've sort of substituted the word sometimes to say kiss the farmer while still making hand gestures of firing weapons. Uh, and shouting pow pow, but regardless. And what prompted this case was uh, the, actually the, the murder trial of Brendan Horner. Now, Brendan Horner, for people who don't know, was a young farmer in Sienna in the Free State, who was brutally murdered and tied up against the, the fencing of, of a farmer, all in the fence. And uh, obviously, it sent, sent shockwaves to the community and indeed South Africa. And what then happened is all you know, thousands of people gathered in Senegal for this, uh, for the first hearings of the accused of, of Brendan Horner. Um, and at that, uh, during that week, the EFF again on video and camera sang Kill the Boer, Kill the Farmer. And we first wrote a letter to the EFF telling them, listen, we're aware of the fact that you've sung the song and we call on you to refrain from doing so. And we'd like to engage you on why we believe the EFF should not be singing this song, why we believe it to be hateful. 
and we just simply didn't receive a response. We, we opened this invitation, tried to discuss it with the EFF, and they simply refused to, to engage at all. So we were compelled to, to then go and to, to, to approach the court. So our application then basically took all of the available footage that we knew of, where the EFF had during the past 10 years uh, some kill the boer, kill the farmer, and, and we went to the Equality Court and we were on trial uh, the past two weeks. And I must say, I think the case went quite well and that uh, Mr. Milena has quite a lot to answer to. He certainly does. And it was a it was a lengthy case. It was you said two weeks in 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 court. I assume that's two working weeks, ten ten days, and uh, from some of the footage uh, that I've seen, it, it got quite heated in 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 that moment. But what is what is your approach, and how, how does the court approach a a politician playing politics within the court? Yes, it's. I mean, it, it's such an interesting case. I mean, if you look at it objectively as as a legal scholar, it's fascinating, and it was quite a fascinating case. And I, I would definitely say that there's a different air to to the case than other civil proceedings. And I think we should make this distinction as well that the Equality Court is not the same as other normal um, uh, uh, normal civil trials. Uh, Rules are a bit more relaxed, the proceedings are a bit more informal, and it's less of an adversarial approach and more of an inquiry. Um, and, and the legislator intended it that way. That's why the, the legislation that created the Equality Court sort of, um, it, it, it's less formalistic and, and less stringent than, than other courts. So uh, for people who followed the trial, they would probably have gotten that sort of sense that the trial is not as formal as they might have believed it to be, but it's also quite good because sort of the nature of it is to be more inquiring. Um, it, yeah, it, it allows us to, to get to the bottom of everything and to have all sides heard. And regarding sort of how it is for politicians to be there, I mean, the point is um, it, it's, a, it's an important public figure who we believe is singing really hateful and insightful uh, songs, right? And and Mr. Malema testified under oath that the reason he sings the song "Kill the Boer, Kill the Farmer" is to mobilise his supporters. Now, I mean, I don't know how more clear cut you can get it um, when a politician says, "Well, the reason I'm singing the song is I want people to act on it." Um, to me, that's sort of you know a clear cut case, and and everything's uh, sort of sorted out from there. Yes, no, definitely. And I do encourage anybody who doesn't want to find out more about that case or or see the legal team in, in action and also see uh, Mr. Malema's responses and, and reactions. Have a look at the, the footage, which is which is available on on YouTube and through various different channels and, and give, give us a go. And we're going to take a quick break. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson, because democracy doesn't just happen. Hey, welcome back to 101.9 High FM. And indeed, democracy doesn't just happen. It requires hard work, doesn't it, Donnie? <laughs> uh, sorry, Rob. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 but for some reason, the audio is quite faint, so I, I, I struggle to hear you a bit. 
Sorry, I'll see what we can do about it. We are experiencing a few a few technical issues, but we will overcome, we'll persevere and push through. So anyway, so Donnie, welcome back. Um, tell us a bit more about some of the other cases that are going. We've had we've heard a lot about the Judas Malema case that's been going over the past two weeks. But what other high profile cases uh, do you have on, on the go? Uh, so at the moment, we, we have quite a, a big case on behalf of the South Africa and Africorum against the Minister of Kota regarding the, the state of disaster that seems to be perpetually renewed uh, every single month. So that's quite a large challenge that's in the pipeline at the moment. We've issued papers. The minister hasn't, hasn't responded yet, but uh, we'll likely get a response quite soon. And that's obviously quite a, an important case at this point. I mean, we're two years into this pandemic, uh, nearly two years into the national state of disaster, and we're still not quite sure on what data the uh, government continues to to uh, enact this state of disaster. So it's quite a big case that, that we're challenging at the moment. And it, it, so obviously we're acting on behalf of DSA and AfriForum, but Solidarity, the trade union, have launched a similar case uh, on at, you know exactly the same time as we did. So this uh, sort of, it, it looks like to be the big next fight that, that we're going to see in our courts this year. That's great. I mean, the state of disaster is, has been extended uh, well, illegitimately, I, I believe, as, as you quite pointed out, as quite rightly pointed out. And hopefully that will be a successful challenge, even though government has actually announced that the state of disaster, this will be the last extension that that does happen. What happens if, if government gets rid of it before before you see your day in court? Well, then quite simply, the pressure has worked. Right? <laughs> the, the, the work what we, that we needed to be done uh, was, was successful. We, we actually thought with, with a couple of previous cases, the first one was uh, on behalf of Dear South Africa in May 2020, where uh, a lot of people would recall we had these crazy regulations and directives by the Minister of Trade and Industry that you can only buy certain products in the store and you can't buy flip-flops and, and, you know, just a bunch of nonsense and e-commerce was, was prohibited. And um, our firm on behalf of DSA wrote to the minister and said, well, this is, I mean, patently irrational and they should change it. And even before we got to court, um, uh, that, that case, uh, well, the minister agreed and, and they changed the regulation. Uh, so that's one instance where, you know, legal pressure you know, gets the results that we see. And another good example is uh, last year, December, so December 2021, we went to court on behalf of Access Forum regarding the, uh, the curfew that was still in place. And we argued the case, I think it was on the 18th of December, around there, um, we, we argued the case, and the case was, was unsuccessful because the court said, well, uh, it, the case isn't, um, it, it's not urgent enough. And uh, coincidentally, a week afterwards, government took away the curfew. So even there, where a court case was lost in sort of the legal sense and procedurally, uh, if you look at the tangible results, uh, the case was, was a success. And I mean, it's not a coincidence that after exerting that amount of public pressure, uh, the government uh, decided to, to take away uh, the silly curfew rules. So the point I'm trying to make, if we bring it back to this case, at the moment regarding the state of disaster, even if government uh, decides to uh, not renew the state of disaster before the case is heard, 
I regard it as a success. And again, this comes back to my earlier point where we need to see court cases as another battlefield to fight the battle of ideas and not the be-all and end-all. Uh, it's just another forum to exert pressure. Exactly. I mean, sometimes, sometimes it, as you say, it doesn't require even going to court. It's simply uh, placing pressure through formal letters to, to government or public participation, which shows thousands of individuals uh, opposed to a government decision that has, has been made or is about to be made. So, yeah, well done for, for all of that. Uh, I see you've also been involved in uh, something to do with Helen Zill. Yes, well, we actually weren't involved uh, directly in that case, but it is, is quite a, an interesting judgment that, that's come out. Basically, the, the gist of it was, uh, I think a lot of people will recall a couple of years ago where uh, Helen Zilla made a bunch of tweets and the public protector said, well, uh, the, the tweets that she made about colonialism in South Africa transgresses their ethical code and, and the public protector made a binding finding against her. And that decision was uh, then later on challenged. And our courts have now confirmed that the public protector was completely wrong in, in that judgment. And so it's so quite a good victory for freedom of speech, I believe, and obviously also for sort of reigning in the powers of the public protector. Because I, I must say, I, it's one of my pet legal peeves is uh, a couple, we, we celebrated the, the um, infamous public report, uh, the public protector case in the constitutional court where the court said no, but the Nkandla finding by the public protector was binding, and we were you know, happy to celebrate it at that time. The court sort of expanded the powers of the public protector at the time when we were all a big fan of the public protector. But now we sit with the public protector who all people not don't necessarily um, like and prefer, and, but she's still sitting with this extended power uh, because... Uh, we, we thought we'd still have Tuli Maronzella at the helm of the public protector, but unfortunately, we, we don't anymore. Ah, so that's, that is a, that's a great example of where a success might not lead to a success or it might actually create problems in, in the future. I'm, I'm sure you get a, quite, a few, quite a few cases like that, where you, mm. but again, it's impossible to, to predict the future, so we don't really know. But yeah. W- what what happens if you if you bring out a judgment or was successful now and it does create problems in the future? Can you revisit that case or re reinvestigate it? Yes, yeah, so, I mean some cases have have been overturned and and some legal principles have changed over time and that's sort of the entire point of it is it, it should change. I mean, if if you look at the United States, there were some horrendous judgments by the Supreme Court in the USA, which have now later been turned uh, turned around, which is the right thing to do. Um, because, again, the, in the law, we talk about the bony mores, the, the, you know, the sensibilities of the community, and those sensibilities change. The public opinion changes over time, and in, in most instances, rightly so. And so it might be that we sit with judgments uh, that are you know, 10, 12, 20 years old, and that now don't sit as uh, comfortably with us as, as they used to. I mean, the point is, our constitutional court has been making judgments for over 20 years, and it might be that in that, those 20 years, a lot of things have changed. So it's not necessarily that the particular case would be reviewed or appealed, and that there's a formal process for that specific case. But in a new case with sort of similar facts or a similar legal find or a sort of matrix, 
the court might come to another conclusion, and then that is the most recent binding um, uh, uh, legal precedent that's been set. In, in fact, yeah, that, that's actually, it's quite an eye-opener, definitely, because times do change, situation changes, social, uh, civil society changes, and uh, governments also change. So laws should actually be uh, updated and, and changed to, to suit the times. We've seen uh, international uh, examples of this, even in Canada recently, where old wartime uh, laws have, have been enacted, probably um completely appropriate for the for the times but it, nonetheless they they do they do uh, exist and are enacted do we see is there a, a significant amount of legislation that is completely outdated but often brought up in by by the state to counter civil civil action yes there are quite a few things that have sort of become redundant and they're still on our books but they're not they're not applied at all uh, i mean south africa really has this very unique and strange situation where we had to incorporate a variety of legal systems into one in 1994. So we still sit with some anomalies. I, I know, for example, there's uh, some parts of South Africa has their own criminal code. So you'd, you'd still have the Transkei criminal code that's applicable to certain population groups in the Eastern Cape, even in you know, 28 years after uh, we've 28 years into our constitutional dispensation, you still have these these weird situations. So there are quite a few. There are other pieces of legislation which are um, you know actively still applied, which might be be out of date. One of the, the probably more famous ones was the Writers Assemblies Act, which the uh, EFS actually took to court, where they said, well, this is apartheid piece of legislation and it's oppressive. And it doesn't, uh, it, it shouldn't, you know, remain in, in a democratic South Africa. And d- during that case, the court, to a certain extent, agreed with the EFS and, and it did amend it uh, slightly to sort of fit better into to our new dispensation. Oh, that's, that's great news. And I'm sure there are many other, other laws and bits of legislation will, will suddenly appear where, when the time is necessary. Perhaps we should have a civil society organization that does actually go through all all the laws and, and sorts out and repeals and make uh, amends legislation to suit the times. That that would be a, a, a great move. Let's let's hope that does it. We're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson, because democracy doesn't just happen. Hey, welcome back to 101.9 High FM. We've had a wonderful chat with uh, Daniel Irloff. He's a civil civil rights uh, uh, lawyer and litigator who's done some incredible, incredible, incredible work. If you uh, want to find out more about him, uh, visit the Hurtis Beast website. And I'm sure Donnie will uh, tell us more, more about that and where you can find out more about it. But... It's absolutely been a, a wonderful chat with with you, Donnie, and really appreciate what what you are doing, what you've done for civil society, and what you have planned ahead. Thank you so much, Rob. No, that's that's very kind. I mean, uh, I always tell people the only reason I'm so lucky to be doing this work is because I have wonderful clients who who are willing to to you know uh, really fight for for South Africans, right? So to me, it's just a pleasure and and really a big privilege. And uh, but thank you for the kind words. 